This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. More than two years after the COVID-19 pandemic began, in fact, it's almost, it's been nearing on to three years, many parts of society are still feeling the ripple effects of lockdowns, none more so than children. However, experts have highlighted time and time again that we have not done enough to ensure that our children are not left behind, whether we're talking about their education, their health or their general well-being. So with Budget 2023 set to be tabled soon, what does a budget that prioritises children look like? So let's find out. Um, on the show today with Dr. Dr. Amar Singh, consultant paediatrician and advisor with the National Early Childhood Intervention Council. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amar. Thanks, Sue, and glad to be here with BFM. Mm. Now, we're seeing a lot of policymakers and many segments of society sort of returning to some semblance of normalcy. You know, some even behave like the pandemic is over. But, you know, that doesn't mean that the pandemic itself or its impact has passed, right? What are the ripple effects that, uh, you know, you're still seeing um, on children? What haven't we done enough to address? Yeah, I think that there are, um, you know, a couple of groups of children that we we need to consider. There are four areas that I, I, I worry about, and that's one reason why we, we, we've been writing about this. One is education. I think this is an area that we completely uh, haven't uh, adequately addressed. There's enormous learning loss in our children. I would estimate uh, from the data that we have, at least 40% of children have had extensive learning loss, and we need to do something about this. And I, I suspect this learning loss is not just for children, it's also for uh, university students as well. Mm-hmm. The second one is something very close to my heart, is poverty. I think there's good data in our country showing that the pandemic has pushed uh, a proportion of children who are in relative poverty now into more absolute poverty. I think the Medeca Center data suggests probably one to two million extra children push into poverty. And and these are people who were, you know, in relative poverty, little reserves now, you know, trapped in poverty because families have lost jobs, stuff like that. And that's going to affect children. The third one, I think, is mental health. We're actually having a mental health pandemic. You can see it among adults. You can see it among us. We're still very fatigued. We struggle. Suicide rates have gone up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think this is unaddressed among children. But those are the three areas. But Suen, I'd like to bring you back to the fact about the pandemic. The pandemic is not over. Uh, and we have left a certain segment of our population unprotected. Under five, no vaccines. Mm-hmm. Five to 11 years of age, I think, with less than 50% of children vaccinated. And any discussion on the pandemic must take into account long COVID. I think there's a missing element in all our discussion regarding children. Long COVID is a disabling chronic disease pandemic. And I think that uh, we, we need to worry about what this uh, long COVID can do to children. Definitely devastating for adults. Mm. And just to touch on that a bit then, right? We've, we've barely, we've only barely started talking about long COVID among adults, let alone children, right? What do you think we can do more to protect those children at the moment, especially those who are unvaccinated, whether, um, you know, by choice or because they simply can't yet? I, I think it's an all of society approach. It's, right now, we seem to push the responsibility back to the individual, you protect yourself kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I think society needs to recognise that the more we prevent the spread of COVID and new variants, the more we protect children. I think the data shows that Omicron is not as nice for children as the original variants are. So I think all of us keeping on our masks in any indoor space is a a way to protect children. Uh, Any child that can wear a mask should wear one. Having a better quality mask, moving to a 
uh, KF94 uh, mask is a better idea for all our, our children as well. And I think the missing element in much of our discussion is ventilation. I don't know whether BFM radio has changed the ventilation of its studio. I know that uh, <laughs> many of the KKM hospitals have not uh, significantly improved ventilation. So I think all schools, all nurseries, all places where children are, we should significantly improve the ventilation, uh, not just open doors and windows, but HEPA filters. Uh, and that, I think, will make a difference in children's lives for those unvaccinated. But if we can, let's mop up the vaccination of any child who can be vaccinated. What are the implications in the long term, you know, for these kids if we don't continuously take into account that their health is still being affected, their education and general well-being are still being affected as well? I think there are three key implications. There are many, but three key ones that I'm concerned with. First, economically. Uh, if we don't help children with their education, we don't build back better into their education, we don't recover their education loss, we're going to get less skilled workers in the future. There's going to be enormous impact, not today, but 20, 30 years down the road in our country. Secondly, is social social impact. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, you know, uh, the more poor we have, the more mental illness uh, that we have in society, the less stable our society is. And of course, there's going to be more crime in society as well. But I'm more concerned with the third one, which is personal. We're losing the potential that these children have for life to live a more meaningful, a deeper, a fuller life. And I think by not building back better into their lives, we are not enabling them to be who they fully can. As many as learned from our own lives, there's so much more potential in our lives as well. Mm. So how would you describe our approach towards, you know, children's issues and their rights and welfare when it comes to policymaking, especially in the past couple of years? But, you know, if we want to look more broadly in the past few decades as well. Um, I think that our policy decisions for children are often fragmented. Mm -hmm. We don't have a cohesive look. I think if you if you look at children, children are sort of a, uh, what should I say, a, a, a life trajectory. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm using the right word here. Mm -hmm. But they have a, a, a lifetime cost perspective. So what you do in childhood is going to impact adolescence is going to impact adulthood and then uh, the elderly. So in children, you need to take a life course perspective and you need to look at cohesively at all their needs. Right now, what we're doing quite often in many of our policies, they're fragmented. We look at smaller areas rather than looking cohesively at all the, 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 the full needs of an individual child and a child in a community. And, and, and I think we've heard that quite often, right, that a lot of, um, you know, policies, a lot of plans are often siloed. You know, each ministry or committee just does what is within, um, you know, their purview and not necessarily speaking to each other. Do you think we have also taken a more proactive or reactive approach when it comes to addressing children's issues? I think that definitely reactive. I think our country generally, not just for children, but for most issues is uh, reactive. We mm -hmm. wait for a problem to surface and then we... You know, we kick up a fuss, which usually has a two-week media cycle and then sort of dies down again. And in addition, we often will say, oh, this is just a small problem or a small fragment of society. Yeah? But if you look carefully at the data, 10% of children sexually abused in Malaysia, 11% stunted in growth, 15% disabled, 30% having uh, speech and learning problems when they reach school. So I, I think we, if you want to solve problems, if you want to fix uh, children's problems, then you need to move away from reactive approach to one that addresses the fabric of our society, the structure, policies, lifestyle, anything that impairs children, we need to change those to make them more wholesome for children.
Mm. I think especially when we're talking about children, anything we do now, like you say, is going to have ripple effects 20, 30 years down the line. And that even that highlights even more that we cannot be reactive because then it might be too late or too slow to address all these issues. Um, let's go for a quick break now, Amar. And when we come back, you know, I'm going to ask you more about your budget wish list, um, which you wrote about recently with several members of um, other civil society organisations. I'm speaking today to Dr. Dr. Amar Singh, consultant pediatrician and advisor with the National Early Childhood Intervention Council. And we are talking about how um, we are addressing children's issues and what the budget, um, what budget 2023 needs to include to be one that prioritizes children's welfare. We'll be right back on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Suan. On the show with me today is Dr. Dr. Amar Singh, consultant pediatrician and advisor with the National Early Childhood Intervention Council. And we have been talking about um, our approach towards policymaking for children's rights and issues and how um, Amar has been, Dr. Amar has been saying that it's been a very fragmented um, system that we've had. You know, a lot of things have been very reactive. Um, in, especially as we've seen in relation to the impact of COVID-19. Um, now, Amar, you recently um, wrote a, a commentary um, among several other ones, um, but a very recent one with other members of civil society organisations. It's a wish list which you know laid out seven main areas that the budget should address. Um, perhaps could you broadly recap what those seven main points are? Sure. Thank you, Suan. And, you know, uh, when I wrote this, I was surprised at the overwhelming support from civil society organizations. Mm -hmm. We had more than 60 organizations that were willing to support this thing. And of course, a lot of editing together as, as a group. Uh, I, I think of the seven, the first two deal with education. The first one deals with preschool. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a, the, the, the zero to six uh, age group is a very important one. The pandemic has hit it very hard. We've lost 25% of some of our preschool services, especially the ones focusing on childcare and disability. And we need to build back into these right now. The second one is uh, follow on from that, which is the standard one and standard two. We know that 40% of children are now reaching standard one, standard two, not school ready, don't have their ABCs, some having uh, language difficulties, and we need to uh, have more teachers to support them. Uh, we need the, our teachers in school support. In fact, right now, in a sense, we have two tracks. Mm -hmm. One children, set of children coming to school ready, Another set of children coming unready, and it's about 60, 40. And I, I can't imagine how a teacher is going to teach this kind of classroom. So we need an extra teacher in every standard one, standard two class. The third one is primary care. We've been talking a lot about the white paper. I've spoken at the white paper conference as well. And in terms of primary care, the foundational uh, uh, individual that runs primary care is the nurse. And we have not given enough focus on nurses which is why we put in uh, in the budget a wish list a suggestion that we boost our nursing manpower in the primary care extensively, maybe three times the manpower we have right now. The fourth one is focusing on child protection. And we know that our welfare department is a weak department. Child protection issues are not well handled. The manpower is low, but more importantly, they don't have a professional social work uh, ethic inside there. And we need to uh, dramatically change this. Uh, the fifth one is looking at children who are in perhaps some of the worst situations in detention, uh, stateless, in prison. And uh, we've talked about this. Government has plans, but they're not come to fruit. And we, we hope that this budget will be the beginning to change the conditions of these children, of course, their families as well. 
The sixth one is children in poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very big one. When you put one idea inside, which is let's have free school meals for all children. It will change the outcome considerably, has been shown by good data in other countries. And finally, an overarching suggestion, we need a children's ministry. In line with what we've been discussing this morning, we need a, a, a cohesive approach to children where we can bring together many different ministries and a children's ministry is the way to go forward for this. Mm. Now, I want to touch on a few things um, out of the points that you listed down, but I'll start first with the children um, ministry. You know, that is not um, new. It's been brought up before again and again, and most notably by former Deputy Minister for Women, Family and Community Development, YB Hanayo as well. Why is this important to you to have some to have a ministry spearheading children's issues um, from what you've seen in your line of work? I think that right now, as we've talked, is fragmented. Each ministry, of course, will plan for children, especially health, welfare and education. I think mm-hmm. three big ministries working for, for children. Of course, other ministries have some impact on children as well. But quite often what happens when is their budget tends to end up with crisis issues or, you know, uh, chronic issues. So health ministry will then focus on a lot on, uh, you know, non-communicable diseases, diabetes, hypertension, and so on. So mm-hmm. children get a very small fragment of that budget uh, built into them. And in primary care, for health, for example, it's fragmented into elderly care, uh, you know, and then uh, palliative care and adolescent care and so on. So the children part of it, again, is, is, is diluted. And this happens in the other ministries as well. So there's no one ministry looking overarchingly at the whole thing. Uh, you know, and uh, thinking about what are the wider needs, one that brings together all the ministries and say, hey, this is how your funding should go. And perhaps the way to go is to fund this ministry extensively and then this ministry fund programs in the other ministries that could execute uh, programs for children that are effective. Mm, essentially have someone spearheading all these policies, isn't it? Agreed. Now, another thing you mentioned, which I found quite interesting, was the strengthening of um, primary health care through nurses. Why could you elaborate more on that link between that and children's welfare? I think that, you know, we focus a lot on doctors and mm-hmm. maybe to some extent on pharmacists. Uh, doctors have actually shouted a lot about their needs. And, and I'm, I'm a doctor, <laughs> of course. But I found that in my life, the people who make the impact on the ground, whether it's in the wards or in primary care, are nurses. They are the ones who execute the healthcare uh, delivery system. Sure, there's some people who talk a lot about IT and how IT can help, but in the real life uh, situation, you need somebody on the ground, somebody who will be there to see the child is not doing well, someone who will be there to, you know, give the immunization to the child, someone who does the antenatal care for the mother, uh, and someone who actually looks at the wellness of the family and the child, and that's the nurse. Whether it's a female nurse or male nurse doesn't really matter to me, but someone on the ground who can then be the care. I've often seen the primary... Uh, healthcare nurse is the one who knows the entire community. Mm-hmm. What's happened, Suen, is that we moved to urban communities. We've lost this phenomenal uh, healthcare model that we have in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And now we're you know, struggling to meet that care, healthcare model in the urban centres. So we need an influx of primary healthcare nurses in the urban centres to meet this. Mm. Now, be it nurses or teachers, right? It, it all boils down to a human resource issue. Where do we find people to take up these positions? I think you've, you've said it in a different way. These two professions, Suen, are now considered not very exciting professions. Mm-hmm. I think if we go to the community today and poll parents and say, what do you want your children to be? The majority will probably say a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> maybe something like that, you know, engineer. Uh, and if you ask children, so they also have aspirations not to become these individuals. So these are the two fundamental professions 
that should uh, be the most valued professions. They are, for example, in Finland, teacher is one of the single most valued profession in that country. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, for example, I only put medicine as my first choice university. My other choices were all teaching because that's the place you can change society and change children. So I think this, these two professions have lost their focus in our country as valuable professions. So to build them back, I think we need to increase the wage uh, structure for these two professions. We need to give more respect to these professions uh, as a society. And I think then maybe more individuals will come into these professions uh, as a first choice, not as a last choice. Hmm. Respect is a very, it's a key word there, isn't it? I think we used to, we, we respect teachers a lot when we're in school, but somehow we um, lose that sense of respect, you know, after we leave school. Do you think that we as a society look at children's needs beyond their immediate, you know, needs of, the day of the moment, right? We, we, I think we often focus on things like food or education, but do we look at children having a good quality of life? Uh, you know, I think that's uh, difficult to answer mm-hmm. in some sense. If you don't have the basics, when, then it's very hard to talk about quality. If your food, your education, your health is impaired, then uh, there's not much quality to talk about. So I think... Uh, Nurturing children, meeting their basic needs is critical. I think then we can talk about the, the issues of quality. And issues of quality are a lot about self-determination. So and the mm-hmm. ability for a child to have their opinion heard, their voice heard, their decisions taken into consideration. And sadly, it is not something that we see very much in our country happening. Culturally, I think a lot of um, families or society, or parts of society still hold that view that, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And and I guess, do you see that um, influ- influencing a lot of our policy then, that children are seen as responsibility of parents, not necessarily the state? Yeah, I, I think you, you're fully right. But could I take a step back and just talk about parents for a moment? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing a study with some colleagues looking at child rights, the UN uh, CRC. And what we've been doing is been interviewing parent-child pairs. We find a mother or father, and then we interview them, interview their child, and the child's age between 7 to 17. And then we ask them different scenarios about rights, about education, about gender difference, roles, and about disability, and so on. It's very distressing that less than 50% of the parent or the child knows child rights in our country. And so that tells you the fabric of thinking across the country. So if you want our policymakers to change, they're also parents. They probably don't understand child rights very well. Uh, so much of our child's rights, uh, our children's thinking right now is influenced by their parents. They are, they are thought to be molded like their parents, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, and uh, not and accept their parents out of the West. For me, to me, a child must always outgrow us, be broader in thinking, better in personhood, more adaptable and resilient than I, I will ever be. And that requires us to give them uh, ability to grow. And I think that's lacking in our country, the ability to grow. You look at adolescence, for example, mm-hmm. we have very poor self-determination in adolescence, uh, in health especially. They hardly any decision-making for their own health, uh, but it also crosses for education and uh, in their parents' uh, homes, for example. So I think the key is that we don't listen to children. We don't listen to children when we make decisions for them. We don't listen to children when we plan services for them. We just think we know what's right for them. And that's not necessarily the correct uh, approach at all in our policy decision making. Mm. How do we start listening to children, right? Especially from right in the home, because what what can parents do to provide that safe space? I I think I often talk about taking off our tinted lenses, our biased outlook in life. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a certain perspective 
but our children may not share that perspective. And the important thing is to come to a place where we can listen to each other. Quite often, we can only listen to what we can hear. We can't listen to what somebody else is trying to say. So I, I talk often about listening, listening, and listening. So it's a no agenda listening. You listen to your children deeply. You don't just say, okay, uh, sudah makan, uh, uh, go and do your homework now, that kind of uh, conversations that we have in homes, but actually sit down with them and say, okay, I'm listening to you clearly right now. You, you tell me what you want to say. Only when we offer children a lot of listening time will they start to share their hearts, their dreams, their hopes, their, their fears with us. And then we can actually help them craft their own future for themselves with some guidance from us. Of course, children do need uh, uh, some guidance. I think the second thing I will tell to parents is actually always consider that you may be wrong. I always, when I'm working with younger staff, I always consider I could be wrong and the idea could be better than mine and their approach could be correct. I'm always going to say, hey, I'm wrong. I, I apologize. Hey, why don't we follow your approach? And I think uh, parents are trained not to be like that, but that actually is a very strong parent who can actually say, I think your idea or your approach is better than mine. Uh, I, I don't think society is going to change. So I just got to stop thinking of children the way we do, you know, uh, we, we look down on them, we don't respect them. In the courts, their voice cannot be heard as much as an adult can be heard. So I think we need to give them back respect uh, as uh, individuals who have an opinion. Mm. And I think that's reflected in some of the more common policies that we see, right? A lot of um, ish policies related to children are in the context of childcare, for example. Mm -hmm. That's right, correct. We actually focus a lot on on parents, and that's, that's legit, legitimate as uh, when It's very hard uh, if you are a double working parent mm -hmm. to actually work if you don't have quality childcare. It's very hard for someone who's poor to earn a living if they don't have free childcare for that matter. So I think childcare is very important, and any parent would definitely echo what I'm saying. But we need to move beyond childcare. We need to move to the child, not just the childcare. Hmm. How, if we look at past budgets, right, how inclusive do you think we've been when it comes to addressing children's welfare and rights? Because one might say that, well, a, a, um, the main recipient of um, a huge chunk of the budget usually is education and that goes into children. But, you know, how would you view it? I think that uh, budget may go into, okay, uh, paying the teachers, which is very important. Uh, but a lot of it into infrastructure development uh, for, the, for the schools, very little into growing our children into being the kind of individuals that we're looking for. Maybe we don't want it. I'm not sure, Suen, I'm thinking here uh, dangerously. Maybe we don't want thinking adults who can think outside the box, who are adaptable and resilient, who can then defer with our opinion. So I think a lot of it has been into our current existing structure. Very little of the money goes into... Uh, experimenting to change our education uh, uh, policy and structure to different. If you look at uh, uh, many of the countries that have made it, that ha that have changed uh, considerably, they have changed uh, how they train children. They don't have a classroom style, conventional classroom style education system anymore. Uh, a lot more uh, uh, sort of um, avenues of the children to learn what they would like to learn rather than what we like to like to teach them. And more importantly, they teach children according to how the children learn, not according to how we teach them. So I think a lot less emphasis of that budget on uh, changing our teachers to teach uh, in a way the children can learn, more emphasis on continue the same of what we are doing right now. Mm. Are we ready for that? I think if we are not ready for that, we've been left behind. Uh, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, which are in the lead in the world, both mm -hmm. in education, in health, 
uh, in social fabric, uh, in, 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 in politics, in every area, they're so far ahead because they've invested in this more than 30, 40 years ago. So I don't think we can afford to not do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's frightening, of course, mm-hmm. but I think it, it is the way to move forward. Mm. Now, of course, funds is always um, an issue, right? There are competing needs. And at this moment, you know, people will say, well, we need to look at the economy. We need to look at health. Should we be finding a middle ground when it comes to, you know, incorporating children's issues into this? Or do we risk, you know, losing sight of long-term gains? I, I think that if you look at children, uh, you know, we talk about them as our future. We hear that quite a bit, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but I don't think we actually really invest uh, as much in their future as we talk about it. There's this um, strategy I like, which came out of Incheon, uh, South Korea. It's a disability regional meeting uh, a couple of years ago. And it said, make the right real. That's a strategy. What does it mean is we know the right thing to do. Let's make it real. So I think in much of our budget and funding and spending on children, uh, we know the right thing to do, but we haven't made it real. We haven't walked the talk to say it. So I think there is no future for our nation unless we invest in our children. We need to invest in children wholesome, children who, uh, you know, their basic needs are met. And it's not just for a fragment of the society, but for all children in Malaysia. So I think, uh, you know, quite often I say make the right real for all children in Malaysia is the way our policy stance should be. And this mirrors what is in the UNCRC for children, that the best interest of the child should be our focus when we are, we're talking about children. And would you have a final takeaway message for our listeners about, you know, um, looking after children's rights and welfare? I think there are three key areas you must always look at, you know, education. Give your child the best education they can have. And that doesn't necessarily mean the current education model we have. Give them an education that empowers them to think. Secondly, you know, support them. There's a mental health pandemic going on right now. And I think we must support our children uh, to to cope with it. Uh, we ourselves need wholesome uh, times as well. So maybe turn off your screens, sit down with your kids, have a chat, have a cup of tea or coffee and, and talk about life. And that's getting back to the conversations we need. And thirdly, think about the community. I don't think we can help our children unless we help the community. I often tell parents, if you don't help other the, the children of other parents, you can't help your own child. So to build back into the fabric of our society for our child's future, we must help the poor. We must help the children who are in bad situation right now. And we can't wait for the government to do this. I think every parent should be trying to reach out to do this as well. Mm. It takes a village to raise a child. Mm, definitely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amar. Thank you, Suen. I've been speaking to Dr. Dr. Amar Singh, consultant pediatrician and advisor with the National Early Childhood Intervention Council. And we've been talking about um, what we can do, especially in Budget 2023, to better prioritise policy for the future of our children. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.